I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Micah chapter 4. We will be in verses 6 through 13. Micah 4, 6 through 13. If you're using the Blue Pew Bible, you can find that on page 778. And our sermon title is, Where is Your King? The key words for our worshipers in training are lame, groan, and rescue. During the 1840s, Frenchman Alexander Dumas published the D'Artagnan Romances, a trilogy following D'Artagnan and his fellow musketeers, Porthos, Athos, and Aramis. The third novel of the trilogy is so long that it is often published in three separate parts. The third part of this novel, The Man in the Iron Mask, which alone is over 700 pages long, is the fictional imagining of the identity of a real historical prisoner of France, known to history only as the man in the Iron Mask. He was arrested uh, either 1669 or 1670, and he was held in a number of French prisons, including the Bastille. And this has been a very intriguing um, mystery to many throughout the years. Well, up front, I'll admit, I've never read the book all the way through, sadly. But I have seen Randall Wallace's 1998 movie of the same title, which is somewhat loosely based on the book. While the book is apparently largely about the deterioration of society, the death of chivalry and honor, and proclaims quite miserably that everything good in the world is dead and evil is one, the movie takes a decidedly different approach. And since... The book is nearly 200 years old, and the movie is over 20 years old. I don't mind spoiling the plot for you if you haven't seen it. In the story, the titular character, the man in the iron mask, whose identity has been kept from him his entire life, he is, you find out, is actually the twin brother of the evil king, Louis XIV. So the plot revolves around replacing the evil king, Louis, with his brother, Philippe, a kinder and more honorable man. Things, however, do not go as planned, but in the movie, unlike the book, the musketeers emerge victorious, even through the death of their leader, D'Artagnan. And King Louis is secretly replaced by Philippe, who becomes one of the greatest kings France had ever known. In short, the, the movie is one of reversals. Unlike the book, upon which it's loosely based, in the movie, good does triumph over evil. The wrongs are made right, and the losses, while severe, generally feel as though they are important contributions to an ultimately worthy cause. And these are the kinds of stories that we love, aren't they? Stories that offer hope in a darkened world. They move us and at times overwhelm us. We're reminded that one day, evil will be no more. And today, as we continue in our series of the book of Micah, we will see that God is, in fact, the author of the greatest reversal the world has ever seen. Micah, you'll remember, is structured around three cycles of sermons, and each cycle begins with the word here and details a coming judgment against sin and concludes with a word of hope, of salvation for the people of God. We are in the middle right now of the second cycle of sermons 
chapters 3 to 5. And last week, the first part of chapter 4, we saw against the backdrop of the promised judgment at the end of chapter 3, we saw God's message of salvation burst forth, not only for Israel, but for the whole world to hear. And in our passage today, we will see that message of hope continue. And as I said a moment ago, we will see the great reversals that it brings about. So let's read Micah 4, beginning in verse 6. We'll read to the end of the chapter. He says, In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who were cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come, kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. Why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let our eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand His plan that He has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in pieces many peoples and shall devote their grain to the Lord, their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. So as we look at these verses this morning, I want to consider three reversals that God is bringing about for His people. First, I want you to notice in verses 6-8, to those who have been cast out will be welcomed back inside. Second, verses 9-10, and we'll see that those who are enslaved, the captive, shall be set free. And third, verses 11-13, to we will see that those who devise evil schemes shall be caught in the very traps that they lay. So first, verses 6 to 8, we will see that God welcomes the outcast. Those who have been cast out, cast aside, will be brought back in. Verse 6 begins with the phrase, in that day. Which is a reference to the latter days of verse 1 of this chapter. It, if Chapter 4, verse 1 begins to put together a puzzle. Verses 1 to 5 are the outer pieces. They are the frame. And the rest of chapter 4 and chapter 5, they are the centerpieces filling in what's missing. Remember, we, we saw last week that the time frame of these prophecies is not a slim margin of time right at the very end of redemptive history. Rather, it is a look to an unknown future from Micah's day where God would bring about a restoration for His people from the plight of sin and death which they had brought upon themselves. There is a day coming, says Micah, in verses 6 and 7, when God will not only gather the nations together, as He had said in verse, verses 1 to 5, 
But he says he will bring about the redemption of his people and welcome the lame, the outcast, and the afflicted by making them together a strong nation. The lame, he says, shall be made whole. The outcast shall be brought in. And the weak shall be made strong. Last week we saw concerning the promises of verses 1-5 to that these promises are fulfilled. At least they begin to find their full fulfillment in the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. God, through the Assyrian and Babylonian invasions, had effectively divorced His covenant people, His bride, and cast them off. They had rejected Him, and so He rejected them. Zion's mountain, we're told, would be leveled like a field. The city would be left in a heap of ruins, and the temple would be destroyed and left a place for nothing more than idolatrous desecrations. This is what we saw at the end of chapter 3, but this note of darkness in chapter 3, verse 12, isn't the final word. There's a day coming, Micah says, when God's temple would be restored, not only for Israel to come and worship, but for all the nations to stream up into the presence of God. And this is done effectively in the church. This happens in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in the Gospel of John that when He was lifted up, He would draw all people to Himself. And we see that in the Gospel, God is bringing about an exaltation of the poor and the lowly. He's throwing a welcome party for those who have been cast out. He is bringing a kingdom to those without a country. Paul, perhaps, had Micah 4, 6, and 7 in mind when he wrote to the Corinthians, Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. The lame, the weak, the outcast, these are the ones who shall make up God's kingdom citizens. These shall receive the former dominion and kingship. I think there are two very important takeaways here. One may serve as a balm to the wounded, weary heart of the downtrodden. The other may serve as a sharp rebuke to the arrogant who think they don't deserve the grace of God. Sorry, they don't, they don't need it. They don't need the grace of God. So first... Perhaps some of you here this morning are struggling deeply to grasp the fact that God could love you. That He would actually have an interest in welcoming you into His kingdom. You are struggling perhaps to see beyond your own shortcomings, your own sin, your own fallenness. Perhaps this week for some of you has been a difficult reminder that you are an outsider. You don't belong in this world ultimately. I have really great news for you. If that's you, Jesus says, welcome. You are precisely the kind of person Jesus wants in His kingdom. Broken and in need of a Savior. Are you lonely? Christ is friendship for the one who's been ignored. 
He is, as we see in verse 7, a king to the kingless. O son, O daughter of Jerusalem, to you shall come the kingship. If you are in Christ this morning, my friends, then you have already been seated with Christ and you reign with Him. Your rule and reign do not begin at some far off distant future from now. They have already started. The Lord reigns over you and will do so forevermore and has welcomed you into His kingdom. And so you may take heart, for yours is the kingdom and it's God's good pleasure to give it to you. Second point of application here pertains not to those struggling with their shortcomings, but to those who don't see any of their shortcomings. Perhaps someone here today fails to see his or her sins. Perhaps you fail to see your outsiderness. And so the words from the prophet here to you should serve as a humbling remedy for your potentially fatal case of arrogance. Who is it exactly that you think makes up the kingdom of God? A bunch of well-to-do, self-sufficient heroes? Winners, righteous, and holy hotheads? Is the remedy good news to the one who isn't sick? Does the gospel give legs to those who already stand comfortably on their own? Of course not. The entire point of the gospel is that it's for broken people in need of redemption. You cannot be filled with the Spirit if you are full of self. You cannot be welcomed as an outcast if you feel perfectly at home in the world. And so I pray for each of us, from whichever direction you come this morning, pray this passage would speak volumes to you. So whether you are humbled and low or high and haughty, may God's Word do its work. Look with me secondly then at verses 9 and 10. And here begins a threefold series of prophecies that each begin with the word now. We will consider the first two today, verses 9 and 11, uh, which are both quite similar in content and in form. And then uh, next week, we'll consider the third of these now prophecies. And so in verse 9, we'll, we'll see a second great reversal. Not only does God welcome the outcast, but He rescues and sets free the captive. Verse 9 contains er, and begins with a few very penetrating questions. He says, Why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? Has that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Verse 10 answers these questions with a command and a promise. So the question, why do you cry aloud as if you have been left to suffer alone? The answer, writhe then and groan in agony for through your pain will come salvation. In verse 9, Micah rebukes Israel for groaning as a woman in labor. He asks this set of rhetorical questions to underscore an important truth. They were not trusting in the Lord. Do you have no king? Of course you do. Has your counselor perished? Of course not. Is your pain equivalent to that of a woman in labor? Not yet. He seeks, it seems, 
to shame them into faith. The answer of these groanings of Israel that comes from the Lord is a strong one. Go ahead and groan because there are dark days coming, he says. There is a day coming when you shall indeed be kingless. You shall indeed have no helper. You shall go out into the open country and dwell in Babylon as captives. But for what purpose? What ultimately shall come of this enslavement? The answer is freedom. He says you there shall be rescued. Through your pain you will be redeemed. God will deliver you from the hand of your enemies. This, my friends, is the great reversal promised in these verses. The slaves shall be made free. Well, what is freedom? What is the freedom promised here? We do know that some 70 years after the Babylonian exile, the Israelites were released and allowed to return back to Jerusalem. But life there was but a shell, a shadow of the former glory, including the temple that was rebuilt. This isn't the ultimate rescue of which God speaks. The ultimate rescue is is it freedom from for God's people from tyrannical government? No. It's freedom from sin. The rescue missions upon which God embarks throughout Scripture ultimately serve to demonstrate the greater rescue He makes in the Gospel. Delivering His people from the penalty, power, and presence of their sin. And again, I think the takeaways here are at least two. First, Believer, do you know that through the Gospel of your Lord, you have been freed from your bondage to the flesh? Paul writes in Romans 8 that we are no longer under any obligation to serve the flesh and its lust and passions. We aren't slaves of sin any longer. We do regularly attempt to submit ourselves once more to its harsh and tyrannical rule. But in the Gospel, we are free Not to do so. We have been bought and paid for by a new master. One whose yoke is easy. Whose burden is light. The Lord Jesus Christ is a kind, merciful, and gracious master. And He invites us once more, as He does every day, to put our sin to death and to vivify the righteous life of faith in Him. And for those who do not yet believe, do you know that you are currently a slave to your sin? You are under its sway, unable to do anything apart from its cruel bidding. But you too, my friend, can be set free. In John 8, Jesus tells us that the truth of which He is its source, the truth will set us free. You don't have to serve tyrant self any longer. You can leave your old master and submit yourself to the gracious rule of King Jesus. He became a servant and took death head on for you. And He won. through Though Christ was laid low, bearing the the weight of sin of all those who had put their trust in Him, death could not hold Him. And after three days, He burst forth victorious from the grave and ascended into heaven, taking a host of captives with Him. And now He offers you freedom. Freedom from sin. All you must do is believe with your heart 
that he is indeed the Lord and confess with your mouth that God raised him from the dead. If you don't know Christ this morning, would you in simple faith turn to King Jesus and find a new master to rule your life with mercy and grace? So not only does this offer hope, but a second takeaway is that deliverance often follows excruciating and painful events. One commentator writes, he says, In every great battle, the cost is great even to the victors. The cost to God is immeasurably great in giving His only Son to die. The cost to Jesus, our Savior King, is beyond comprehension. And for us, he says, we must surrender our self-righteousness, confessing our sins and need of forgiveness. We cede our Lordship over our lives, yielding to Christ. He calls us to take up our cross, the instrument of death where He died. This means that the Christian life cannot be lived at leisure under peaceful skies. Last week we saw that there is a day coming when every man, each one of us, will sit peacefully under his own tree. And while that day has begun, we may know the peace of Christ in our souls through the Gospel. The day has not reached high noon yet. As the hymn says, often sorrow, often woe. Onward, Christian, onward, go. Through trials, we can know that even though they are painful and they hurt, there is a brighter day coming, a day when we will be freed, not primarily from tyrants and evil men, but from sin itself. Third, finally, we see our last great reversal in verses 11 through 13. God traps the schemers in their own snares. Here is the second now of this threefold prophecy, filling in the puzzle of salvation began in verse 1. Now, Micah says, the surrounding nations, likely a reference to the international horde of mercenaries that comprise the Assyrian standing army in their invasion of Jerusalem in 701 B.C., He says, now they would look upon Israel with evil intent in their eyes. They wanted to look upon Zion to see what destruction came upon her. The situation was bleak for Israel. The nations have assembled together to abuse and defile the people of God. But little do they know, God has other plans. Verse 12 tells us, Although they have come together for evil purposes against His chosen nation, He has in fact brought them together for His entirely different just purposes. He has gathered them as sheaves to the threshing floor. In 2 Samuel 24, we learn that David purchased a plot of land with a threshing floor on it. And it is on this plot of land that the temple is eventually built. It's an ironic twist like the other reversals that come before it, it's, not just, it's just not what we'd expect. The nations have gathered together to curse and to mock and defile Israel. But what they intended for evil against the people of God, God intends for judgment against them. Again, one commentator writes, they, they willfully conspire to break into the temple precincts. But in Yahweh's comprehensive will, they brought themselves 
of their own accord to his threshing floor where they are about to be pulverized. They came to Jerusalem to strip the temple, but precisely there they will be stripped. Where they conspired to desecrate Yahweh's name and sanctuary, their filthy loot will be consecrated to Yahweh for destruction. Where they hope to rid the earth of the transcendent and holy God, the Lord of all the earth will rid the earth of them. The irony is especially thick when we see the means by which he says he will bring about the destruction of these wicked people. He calls out to his own people, the daughter of Zion, he says, Arise and thresh, equipped with a horn of iron and bronze hooves, symbols of power and strength. The people of God will beat in pieces as many peoples and devote their possessions to the Lord. Probably the first historical event in reference here uh, is that surrounding army in 701 B.C. with the Assyrians at the gate of Jerusalem where the Lord actually slays 185,000 Assyrians in one night. But it isn't ultimately against a national superpower that this text most particularly aims. The most significant reversal of evil in the world doesn't happen to Assyria or Babylon or Greece or Rome. Where does the most significant reversal of evil happen? It happens at the cross. It's been said that the cross is a form of spiritual jujitsu. Here's what I mean by that. Um, Kuzushi, the art of breaking balance, so I read, is a, a technique used in jujitsu, whereby an opponent's attack is deflected and their momentum is used against them in order to arrest their movements and throw or pin them down. It's the classic use your enemy's strength as a weapon against him. In Genesis 3.15, God makes a declaration of war against Satan and says that he, Satan, and the woman and their respective seeds will be at enmity with each other until one day the serpent will bruise the heel of the woman's seed and in the process he will get his head crushed by the woman's seed. In the cross, God takes the most wicked, evil, heinous act ever perpetrated on or by humanity and uses it to bring about the salvation of humanity. The fowler was caught in his own snare. Satan set the trap for the Lord Jesus himself, but he did not know the thoughts of the Lord. He did not understand his plan. For it was on that day that God gathered Satan, the forces of darkness, and an evil conspiring world together as sheaves to the threshing floor and triumphed over them in Christ, canceling the record of debt and wrong that stood against us. Satan and the world had gathered together to see and to scorn the Son of God that they might gaze upon His defilement. But it was simply to be their undoing. With all their might, they struck at the heel of the Son of God. And before they knew it, that heel came down hard upon their head. So to bring it full circle... We may remember the cinematic depiction of D'Artagnan, Porthos, Athos, Aramis, and Philippe as they 
valiantly overcame the evil, oppressive, tyrant King Louis. But the best thing about it is that it serves as a small picture of another story. One about a greater king than Philippe triumphing over a worse king than Louis. Sin shall not ultimately prevail. Believer, you have and will triumph over the evil one and all who do his bidding in the Lord Jesus Christ. Fear not, you shall devote their wealth to the Lord and their wealth to the Lord of all the earth. It's all His. And guess what? God shall give it back. Jesus tells us that the meek will inherit the earth. God has promised His people, all of us, enjoyment of the entire earth one day. And until then, we can wait with patience as God continues to bring about His great reversal as He welcomes the outcast, frees the captive, and returns the evil of the wicked upon their own heads. And so whatever you are facing, we'll end with this question. Where is your king? Let's pray together. Father, you are the holy God who made heaven and earth and you you sustain us you watch over us you care for us despite our many sins against you and I pray that this morning you would be pleased through a sinful broken man to honor Yourself in the preaching of Your Word. Make Your name great in our hearts. Break our hearts where they are proud. Heal our hearts where they are broken. And I pray that You would fill us with Your Spirit that we may understand Your Word, that we may love Your Word, that we may live in light of Your Word. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.